Part 1, Chapter 4, Section 2 of Chance by Joseph Conrad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Chance, Part 1, Chapter 4, Section 2. You understand, Marlowe interrupted the current of his narrative, that in order to be consecutive in my relation of this affair, I am telling you at once the details which I heard from Mrs. Fine later in the day, as well as what little Fine imparted to me with his usual solemnity during that morning call. As you may easily guess, the Fines, in their apartments, had read the news at the same time, and, as a matter of fact, in the same august and highly moral newspaper as the governess in the luxurious mansion a few doors down on the opposite side of the street. But they read them with different feelings. They were thunderstruck. Fine had to explain the full purport of the intelligence to Mrs. Fine, whose first cry was that of relief. Then that poor child would be safe from these designing, horrid people. Mrs. Fine did not know what it might mean to be suddenly reduced from riches to absolute penury. Fine, with his masculine imagination, was less inclined to rejoice extravagantly at the girl's escape from the moral dangers which had been menacing her defenceless existence. It was a confoundedly big price to pay. What an unfortunate little thing she was. We might be able to do something to comfort that poor child at any rate for the time she is here, said Mrs. Fine. She felt under a sort of moral obligation not to be indifferent. But no comfort for anyone could be got by rushing out into the street at this early hour, and so, following the advice of Fine not to act hastily, they both sat down at the window and stared feelingly at the great house, awful to their eyes in its stolid, prosperous, expensive respectability, with ruin absolutely standing at the door. By that time, or very soon after, all Brighton had the information, and formed a more or less just appreciation of its gravity. The butler in Mr. Barrell's big house had seen the news, perhaps earlier than anybody within a mile of the parade, in the course of his morning duties, of which one was to dry the delivered paper before the fire, an occasion to glance at it, which no intelligent man could have neglected. He communicated to the rest of the household his vaguely forcible impression that something had gone damnably wrong with the affairs of her father in London. This brought an atmosphere of constraint through the house, which Flora de Barrel, coming down somewhat later than usual, could not help noticing in her own way. Everybody seemed to stare so stupidly somehow. She feared a dull day. In the dining-room, the governess in her place, a newspaper half-concealed under the cloth on her lap, after a few words exchanged with lips that seemed hardly to move, remaining motionless, her eyes fixed before her in an enduring silence, and presently Charlie coming in, to whom she did not even give a glance. He hardly said good morning, though he had a half-hearted try to smile at the girl, and sitting opposite her with his eyes on his plate, and slight quivers passing along the line of his clean-shaven jaw, he too had nothing to say. It was dull, horribly dull, to begin one's day like this, but she knew what it was, these never-ending family affairs. It was not for the first time that she had suffered from their depressing after-effects on these two. It was a shame that the delightful Charlie should be made dull by these stupid talks, and it was perfectly stupid of him to let himself be upset like this by his aunt. When, after a period of still, as if calculating immobility, her governess got up abruptly and went out with the paper in her hand, almost immediately afterwards followed by Charlie, who left his breakfast half-eaten, 
the girl was positively relieved. They would have it out that morning, whatever it was, and be themselves again in the afternoon. At least, Charlie would be. To the moods of her governess, she did not attach so much importance. For the first time that morning, the Fines saw the front door of the awful house open, and the objectionable young man issue forth, his rascality visible to their prejudiced eyes, in his very bowler hat and in the smart cut of his short fawn overcoat. He walked away rapidly, like a man hurrying to catch a train, glancing from side to side as though he were carrying something off. Could he be departing for good? Undoubtedly, undoubtedly. But Mrs. Fine's fervent, thank goodness, turned out to be a bit, as the Americans, some Americans, say, previous. In a very short time, the odious fellow appeared again, strolling, absolutely strolling back, his hat now tilted a little on one side, with an air of leisure and satisfaction. Mrs. Fine groaned, not only in the spirit at this sight, but in the flesh, audibly, and asked her husband what it might mean. Fine naturally couldn't say. Mrs. Fine believed that there was something horrid in progress, and meantime the object of her detestation had gone up the steps and had knocked at the door which had once opened to admit him. He had been only as far as the bank. His reason for leaving his breakfast unfinished to run after Mr. Barrell's governess was to speak to her in reference to that very errand, possessing the utmost possible importance in his eyes. He shrugged his shoulders at the nervousness of her eyes and hands, at the half-strangled whisper, I had to go out, I could hardly contain myself. That was her affair. He was, with a young man's squeamishness, rather sick of her ferocity. He did not understand it. Men do not accumulate hate against each other in tiny amounts, treasuring each pinch carefully till it grows at last into a monstrous and explosive hoard. He had run out after her to remind her of the balance at the bank. What about lifting that money without wasting any more time? She had promised him to leave nothing behind. An account opened in her name for the expenses of the establishment in Brighton had been fed by de Barrel with deferential lavishness. The governess crossed the wide hall into a little room at the side where she sat down to write the cheque, which he hastened out to go and cash as if it was stolen or a forgery. As observed by the fines, his uneasy appearance on leaving the house arose from the fact that his first trouble, having been caused by a cheque of doubtful authenticity, the possession of a document of the sort made him unreasonably uncomfortable till this one was safely cashed. And, after all, you know, it was stealing of an indirect sort, for the money was de Barrel's money if the account was in the name of the accomplished lady. At any rate, the cheque was cashed. On getting hold of the notes and gold, he recovered his jaunty bearing, it being well known that with certain natures the presence of money, even stolen, in the pocket, acts as a tonic, or at least as a stimulant. He cocked his hat a little on one side, as though he had had a drink or two, which indeed he might have had in reality to celebrate the occasion. The governess had been waiting for his return in the hall, disregarding the side glances of the butler as he went in and out of the dining room, clearing away the breakfast things. It was she herself who had opened the door so promptly. "'It's all right,' he said, touching his breast pocket." and she did not dare, the miserable wretch without illusions, she did not dare ask him to hand it over. They looked at each other in silence. He nodded significantly. Where is she now? And she whispered, gone into the drawing-room. Want to see her again? With an archly black look, which he acknowledged by a muttered surly, 
I'm damned if I do. Well, as you want a bolt like this, why don't we go now? She set her lips with cruel obstinacy and shook her head. She had her idea, her completed plan. At that moment, the Fines, still at the window and watching like a pair of private detectives, saw a man with a long grey beard and a jovial face go up the steps, helping himself with a thick stick, a knock at the door. Who could he be? He was one of Miss de Barrel's masters. She had lately taken up painting in watercolours, having read in a high-class women's weekly paper that a great many princesses of the European royal houses were cultivating that art. This was the watercolour morning, and the teacher, a veteran of many exhibitions, of a venerable and jovial aspect, had turned up with his usual punctuality. He was no great reader of morning papers, and even had he seen the news, it is very likely he would not have understood its real purport. At any rate, he turned up as the governess expected him to do, and the fine saw him pass through the fateful door. He bowed cordially to the lady in charge of Mr. Burrell's education, whom he saw in the hall engaged in conversation with a very good-looking but somewhat raffish young gentleman. She turned to him graciously. Flora is already waiting for you in the drawing-room. The cultivation of the art said to be patronised by princesses was pursued in the drawing-room from considerations of the right kind of light. The governess preceded the master up the stairs and into the room where Mr. Barrel was found arrayed in a Holland pinafore, also of the right kind for the pursuit of the art, and smilingly expectant. The watercolour lesson, enlivened by the jocular conversation of the kindly, humorous old man, was always great fun, and she felt she would be compensated for the tiresome beginning of the day. Her governess generally was present at the lesson, but on this occasion she only sat down till the master and pupil had gone to work in earnest, and then, as though she had suddenly remembered some order to give, rose quietly and went out of the room. Once outside, the servant, summoned by the passing maid without a bell being rung, and, quick, quick, let all this luggage be taken down into the hall, and let one of you call a cab. She stood outside the drawing-room door on the landing, looking at each piece, trunk, leather cases, portmanteau, being carried past her, her brows knitted, and her aspect so sombre and absorbed that it took some little time for the butler to muster courage enough to speak to her. But he reflected that he was a free-born Briton and had his rights. He spoke straight to the point, but in the usual respectful manner. "'Beg your pardon, ma'am, but are you going away for good?' He was startled by her tone. Its unexpected, unladylike harshness fell on his trained ear with the disagreeable effect of a false note. "'Yes, I am going away, and the best thing for all of you is to go away too, as soon as you like. You can go now, today, this moment.' You had your wages paid you only last week. The longer you stay, the greater your loss. But I have nothing to do with it now. You are the servants of Mr. de Barrel, you know. The butler was astounded by the manner of this advice, and as his eyes wandered to the drawing-room door, the governess extended her arm as if to bar the way. Nobody goes in there. And that was said still in another tone, such a tone that all trace of the trained respectfulness vanished from the butler's bearing. He stared at her with a frank, wondering gaze. "'Not till I am gone,' she added, and there was such an expression on her face that the man was daunted by the mystery of it. He shrugged his shoulders slightly, and without another word went down the stairs on his way to the basement, brushing in the hall past Mr. Charles, who, hat on head and both hands rammed deep into his overcoat pockets, paced up and down as though on sentry duty there. 
The lady's maid was the only servant upstairs, hovering in the passage on the first floor, curious and as if fascinated by the woman who stood there guarding the door. Being beckoned closer imperiously, and asked by the governess to bring out of the now empty rooms the hat and veil, the only objects besides the furniture still to be found there, she did so in silence, but inwardly fluttered. And while waiting uneasily with the veil before that woman, who, without moving a step away from the drawing-room door, was pinning with careless haste her hat on her head, she heard within a sudden burst of laughter from Mr. Barrel, enjoying the fun of the watercolour lesson, given her for the last time by the cheery old man. Mr. and Mrs. Fine ambushed at their window, a most incredible occupation for people of their kind, saw with renewed anxiety a cab come to the door, and watched some luggage being carried out and put on its roof. The butler appeared for a moment, then went in again. What did it mean? Was Flora going to be taken to her father, or were these people, that woman and her horrible nephew, about to carry her off somewhere? Fine couldn't tell. He doubted the last, Flora having now, he judged, no value, either positive or speculative. Though no great reader of character, he did not credit the governess with humane intentions. He confessed to me, naively, that he was excited, as if watching some action on the stage. Then the thought struck him that the girl might have had some money settled on her, be possessed of some means, of some little fortune of her own, and therefore... He imparted this theory to his wife, who shared fully his consternation. "'I can't believe the child will go away without running in to say good-bye to us,' she murmured. "'We must find out. I shall ask her.' But at that very moment the cab rolled away, empty inside, and the door of the house, which had been standing slightly ajar till then, was pushed too. They remained silent, staring at it, till Mrs. Fine whispered doubtfully, "'I really think I must go over.' Fine didn't answer for a while. His is a reflective mind, you know. And then, as if Mrs. Fine's whispers had an occult power over that door, it opened again, and the white-bearded man issued, astonishingly active in his movements, using his stick almost like a leaping pole to get down the steps, and hobbled away briskly along the pavement. Naturally, the Fines were too far off to make out the expression of his face, but it would not have helped them very much to a guess at the conditions inside the house. The expression was humorously puzzled, nothing more. For, at the end of his lesson, seizing his trusty stick and coming out with his habitual vivacity, he was very nearly cannoned just outside the drawing-room door into the back of Mr. Barrel's governess. He stopped himself in time, and she turned round swiftly. It was embarrassing. He apologised, but her face was not startled. It was not aware of him. It wore a singular expression of resolution. A very singular expression, which, as it were, detained him for a moment. In order to cover his embarrassment, he made some inane remark on the weather, upon which, instead of returning another inane remark, according to the tacit rules of the game, she only gave him a smile of unfathomable meaning. Nothing could have been more singular. The good-looking young gentleman of questionable appearance took not the slightest notice of him in the hall. No servant was to be seen. He let himself out, pulling the door to behind him with a crash, as, in a manner, he was forced to do to get it shut at all. When the echo of it had died away, the woman on the landing leant over the banister and called out bitterly to the man below, "'Don't you want to come up and say good-bye?' He had an impatient movement of the shoulders and went on pacing to and fro as though he had not heard. But suddenly he checked himself, stood still for a moment, 
then, with a gloomy face and without taking his hands out of his pockets, ran smartly up the stairs. Already facing the door, she turned her head for a whispered taunt. Come, confess you were dying to see her stupid little face once more, to which he disdained to answer. Flora de Barrel, still seated before the table at which she had been working on her sketch, raised her head at the noise of the opening door. The invading manner of their entrance gave her the sense of something she had never seen before. She knew them well. She knew the woman better than she knew her father. There had been between them an intimacy of relation as great as it can possibly be without the final closeness of affection. The delightful Charlie walked in, with his eyes fixed on the back of her governess, whose raised veil hid her forehead like a brown band above the black line of the eyebrows. The girl was astounded and alarmed by the altogether unknown expression on the woman's face. The stress of passion often discloses an aspect of the personality completely ignored till then by its closest intimates. There was something like an emanation of evil from her eyes, and from the face of the other, who, exactly behind her and overtopping her by half a head, kept his eyelids lowered in a sinister fashion, which, in the poor girl, reached, stirred, set free that faculty of unreasoning explosive terror lying locked up at the bottom of all human hearts, and of the hearts of animals as well. With suddenly enlarged pupils and a movement as instinctive almost as the bounding of a startled fawn, she jumped up and found herself in the middle of the big room, exclaiming at those amazing and familiar strangers, "'What do you want?' You will note that she cried, "'What do you want?' not what has happened. She told Mrs. Fine that she had received suddenly the feelings of being personally attacked, and that must have been very terrifying. The woman before her had been the wisdom, the authority, the protection of life, security embodied and visible and undisputed. You may imagine, then, the force of the shock in the intuitive perception not merely of danger, for she did not know what was alarming her, but in the sense of the security being gone and not only security. I don't know how to explain it clearly. Look, even a small child lives, plays and suffers in terms of its conception of its own existence. Imagine, if you can, a fact coming in suddenly with a force capable of shattering that very conception itself. It was only because of the girl being still so much of a child that she escaped mental destruction, that, in other words, she got over it. Could one conceive of her more mature, while still as ignorant as she was, one must conclude that she would have become an idiot on the spot, long before the end of that experience. Luckily, people, whether mature or not mature, and who really is ever mature, are for the most part quite incapable of understanding what is happening to them. A merciful provision of nature, to preserve an average amount of sanity for working purposes in this world. But we, my dear Marlowe, have the inestimable advantage of understanding what is happening to others, I struck in. Or at least some of us seem to. Is that too a provision of nature? And what is it for? Is it that we may amuse ourselves gossiping about each other's affairs? You, for instance, seem... I don't know what I seem, Marlowe silenced me. And surely life must be amused somehow. It would be still a very respectable provision if it were only for that end. But from that same provision of understanding there springs in us compassion, charity, indignation, the sense of solidarity, and in minds of any largeness an inclination to that indulgence which is next door to affection. 
I don't mean to say that I am inclined to an indulgent view of the precious couple which broke in upon an unsuspecting girl. They came marching in, as the very expression she used later on to Mrs. Fine, but at her cry they stopped. It must have been startling enough to them. It was like having the mask torn off when you don't expect it. The man stopped for good. He didn't offer to move a step further. But though the governess had come in there for the very purpose of taking the mask off for the first time in her life, she seemed to look upon the frightened cry as a fresh provocation. "'What are you screaming for, you little fool?' she said, advancing alone close to the girl, who was affected exactly as if she had seen Medusa's head with serpentine locks set mysteriously on the shoulders of that familiar person, in that brown dress, under that hat she knew so well. It made her lose all her hold on reality.' She told Mrs. Fine, I didn't know where I was. I didn't even know that I was frightened. If she had told me it was a joke, I would have laughed. If she had told me to put on my hat and go out with her, I would have gone to put on my hat and gone out with her and never said a single word. I should have been convinced I had been mad for a minute or so, and I would have worried myself to death rather than breathe a hint of it to her or anyone. But the wretch put her face close to mine and I could not move. Directly I had looked into her eyes, I felt grown onto the carpet. It was years afterwards that she used to talk like this to Mrs. Fine, and to Mrs. Fine alone. Nobody else ever heard the story from her lips, but it was never forgotten. It was always felt. It remained like a mark on her soul, a sort of mystic wound to be contemplated, to be meditated over. And she said further to Mrs. Fine, in the course of many confidences provoked by that contemplation, that as long as that woman called her names it was almost soothing, it was in a manner reassuring. Her imagination had, like her body, gone off in a wild bound to meet the unknown, and then to hear, after all, something which, more in its tone than in its substance, was mere venomous abuse, had steadied the inward flutter of all her being. She called me a little fool more times than I can remember. I, a fool. Why, Mrs. Fine, I do assure you I had never yet thought at all, never of anything in the world till then. I just went on living, and one can't be a fool without one has at least tried to think. But what had I ever to think about? And no doubt, commented Marlowe, her life had been a mere life of sensations, the response to which can neither be foolish nor wise. It can only be temperamental and I believe that she was of a generally happy disposition, a child of the average kind. Even when she was asked violently whether she imagined that there was anything in her apart from her money to induce any intelligent person to take any sort of interest in her existence, she only caught her breath in one dry sob and said nothing, made no other sound, made no movement. When she was viciously assured that she was in heart, mind, manner and appearance an utterly common and insipid creature, She remained still, without indignation, without anger. She stood, a frail and passive vessel, into which the other went on pouring all the accumulated dislike for all her pupils, her scorn for all her employers, the ducal one included, the accumulated resentment, the infinite hatred of all these unrelieved years of, I won't say hypocrisy, The practice of perfect hypocrisy is a relief in itself, a secret triumph of the vilest sort, no doubt, but still a way of getting even with the common morality from which some of us appear to suffer so much. 
No, I will say the years, the passionate, bitter years of restraint, the iron, admirably mannered restraint at every moment, in a never-failing, perfect correctness of speech, glances, movements, smiles, gestures, establishing for her a high reputation, an impressive record of success in her sphere. It had been like living half-strangled for years. And all this torture for nothing in the end. What looked at last like a possible prize, oh, without illusions, but still a prize, broken in her hands, fallen in the dust, the bitter dust of disappointment. She revelled in the miserable revenge, pretty safe too, only regretting the unworthiness of the girlish figure which stood for so much she had longed to be able to spit venom at, if only once, in perfect liberty. The presence of the young man at her back increased both her satisfaction and her rage but the very violence of the attack seemed to defeat its end by rendering the representative victim, as it were, insensible. The cause of this outrage naturally escaping the girl's imagination, her attitude was in effect that of dense, hopeless stupidity. And it is a fact that the worst shocks of life are often received without outcries, without gestures, without a flow of tears and the convulsions of sobbing. The insatiable governess missed these signs exceedingly, this pitiful stolidity was only a fresh provocation, yet the poor girl was deadly pale. I was cold, she used to explain to Mrs. Fine. I had had time to get terrified. She had pushed her face so near mine, and her teeth looked as though she wanted to bite me. Her eyes seemed to have become quite dry, hard and small, in a lot of horrible wrinkles. I was too afraid of her to shudder, too afraid of her to put my fingers to my ears. I didn't know what I expected her to call me next, but when she told me I was no better than a beggar, that there would be no more masters, no more servants, no more horses for me, I said to myself, is that all? I should have laughed if I hadn't been too afraid of her to make the least little sound. It seemed that poor Flora had to know all the possible phases of that sort of anguish, beginning with instinctive panic, through the bewildered stage, the frozen stage, and the stage of blanched apprehension, down to the instinctive prudence of extreme terror, the stillness of the mouse. But when she heard herself called the child of a cheat and a swindler, the very monstrous unexpectedness of this caused in her a revulsion towards letting herself go. She screamed out all at once, You mustn't speak like this of Papa! The effort of it uprooted her from that spot where her little feet seemed dug deep into the thick, luxurious carpet, and she retreated backwards to a distant part of the room, hearing herself repeat, You mustn't! You mustn't! as if it were somebody else screaming. She came to a chair and flung herself into it. Thereupon the somebody else ceased screaming, and she lolled, exhausted, sightless, in a silent room, as if indifferent to everything and without a single thought in her head. The next few seconds seemed to last for ever so long, a black abyss of time separating what was past and gone from the reappearance of the governess and the reawakening of fear. And that woman was forcing the words through her set teeth. You say, I mustn't, I mustn't. All the world will be speaking of him like this tomorrow. They will say it and they'll print it. You shall hear it and you shall read it, and then you shall know whose daughter you are. Her face lighted up with an atrocious satisfaction. He's nothing but a thief, she cried, this father of yours. 
As to you, I have never been deceived in you for a moment. I have been growing more and more sick of you for years. You are a vulgar, silly non-entity, and you shall go back to where you belong, whatever low place you have sprung from, and beg your bread. That is, if anybody's charity will have anything to do with you, which I doubt. She would have got on regardless of the enormous eyes of the open mouth of the girl who sat up suddenly with the wild staring expression of being choked by invisible fingers on her throat and yet horribly pale. The effect on her constitution was so profound, Mrs. Fine told me, that she, who as a child had a rather pretty, delicate colouring, showed a white, bloodless face for a couple of years afterwards and remained always liable at the slightest emotion to an extraordinary ghost-like whiteness. The end came in the abomination of desolation of the poor child's miserable cry for help. Charlie! Charlie! Coming from her throat in hidden, gasping efforts. Her enlarged eyes had discovered him where he stood, motionless and dumb. He started from his immobility, a hand withdrawn brusquely from the pocket of his overcoat, strode up to the woman, seized her by the arm from behind, saying in a rough, commanding tone, Come away, Eliza! In an instant the child saw them close together and remote, near the door, gone through the door, which he neither heard nor saw being opened or shut. But it was shut. Oh yes, it was shut. A slow, unseeing glance wandered all over the room. For some time longer she remained leaning forward, collecting her strength, doubting if she would be able to stand. She stood up at last. Everything about her span round in an oppressive silence. She remembered perfectly, as she told Mrs. Fine, that, clinging to the arm of the chair, she called out twice, Papa! Papa! At the thought that he was far away in London, everything about her became quite still. Then, frightened suddenly by the solitude of that empty room, she rushed out of it blindly. End of Part 1, Chapter 4, Section 2